0: Welcome. Today I'm here with a friend of mine, Danica Larnie. Danica is a somatic coach working with people to empower them through their body. She's got a BA in dance and an advanced diploma in yoga teacher training. Her motto is when you move your body, you move your mood. Welcome Danica.
1: Thank you so much, Karen. It's so great to be here with you.
0: I know. And the other bit I missed out there was you live in Sydney with your partner and you've got a five-year-old as well, which is pretty full on, isn't it? It So give me a bit of, tell me first off, what is somatic training? Is it training? I missed that then. What is somatic movement, dance training?
1: Yeah. No, great question. So soma means body. So Uh somatic just means the body. So I coach people by empowering them through the body. And the modalities that I use are yoga, dance, and tantra. So all my work is all about being empowered through the body. And I've discovered there's a couple of things that really help you feel empowered through the body. And the first one is you've got to feel good in your body. If you don't feel good in your body, then how can you be empowered? Like you can. It's not impossible, but it's harder. And I'm someone who's dealt with chronic pain for a long time. I have endometriosis. And so it's something that you can, but you've got to feel good in your body to really be empowered. So that's the first pillar that I've discovered. And the second pillar is you've got to be 100% at home in your own body. And being someone who is from the LGBTQIA plus community, the queer community, that's something that I've had to learn over the years is how to be 100% at home in my own skin so I can be myself fully and not ever feel like I'm hiding. And then the third pillar is being connected. So feeling connected with yourself, with other people, maybe even with something bigger than yourself. So when we feel connected, then life feels good. When we feel disconnected, that's when people want to hurt, harm, kill, maim other people. And then lastly, the third pillar is being a gift to the world. So finding the way that you're a unique contribution to the world and to other people, finding out what that is for yourself. So they're the things that I've discovered. that All the work that I do is inside of those, those four pillars. You did a TED Talk, didn't you? What was I that did... about? Talk to me about that. Yeah, I did a TEDx Talk. Um, it was a women's um, event in Melbourne. and um, I was asked to do a do a TEDx talk by one of my colleagues, and she had traveled overseas. She met this guy at an airport, and this is before TED was really really big, right? There she is, she's sitting in some airport, and this woman is like Emily, her name is. She's so um, effervescent and bubbly and friendly. She will just go up to anybody, and she noticed this guy in the airport had a sticker on his laptop that said TED, and so she went up, bounds up to him, and says. Oh my God, I loved Ted, and da 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 da. Turns out he worked for Ted, and he said to her, "If you love this so much, I charge you with going back to your community and creating a TEDx event." So she came back all inspired and asked a bunch of women to um, be speakers. So I did a TEDx talk about being a gift to the world and what I discovered for myself about being a gift to the world. When I was younger and all the way up into my mid-20s, I didn't relate to myself like I was a gift to the world, but I didn't know it. And what had happened was when I was eight, mum and I was sitting on the bed and we're having this like kind of rare conversation about what had happened when I was born. And what happened was that my dad, my biological father, Alan, he died just before I was born, like 41 days before I was born. He was 32. He had a heart attack and dropped dead. And there's my mum and she's pregnant with me and she has three other kids under the age of six in the late 70s. And I was born. And so mum was telling me this conversation, the story about what had happened. And mum had remarried when I was one and a half. So I actually grew up with a dad. So I absolutely loved. They had another daughter who's my younger sister. So I've been blessed to have an amazing family. And uh, But there we were. Eight years old, a mum told me that I was an accidental pregnancy. And of course, she meant we just hadn't planned to have another kid, and there, there you were, pop, you know, it happened. But I was eight years old and I remember thinking, Oh my God, I'm not supposed to exist. I'm a mistake. I shouldn't even be here. And then promptly forgot about that conversation, but carried that and it shaped how I was in the world. And here's how it here's how it kind of showed up in my life, Karen. I would meet someone new and uh, you know, introduce myself. Maybe a week later, I'd bump into them again and I'd reintroduce myself because I expected that they didn't remember me because I shouldn't be here. I'm a mistake. So people need to be reminded just in case they'd forgotten me. So <laughs> I'm just doing this over and over. And mostly people would be like, yeah, I know, we met last week. Like... <laughs> I remember you. So it wasn't even a real thing that was going on. But in my way of relating to people, it was like communication was just that little bit harder and I never knew why. It was like wading through water. And so when I discovered that that was the thing that was holding me back, the decision that I'd made when I was eight, that I'm a mistake and I shouldn't exist, was like, wow, do I want to stick with that decision that I made or do I want to create something new? And I invented being a gift to my mum and also being a gift to the world, and it completely altered all of my actions and everything about contributing to my mum and being a contribution in the world. In fact, I went from living in the bush on forty acres, it was a beautiful area, had a beautiful life, but I was definitely hiding. And I came back out into the world. At the time, I was a musician, and I started sharing my music with the world, and and. Um, inside of being a gift to the world. So that that definitely wouldn't have happened if I had kept that experience of being a mistake and being an apology for existing. I don't know. I've met other people who can relate to that, to that story and they've got a similar story for themselves.
0: I'm on a guilt trip here because my two youngest <laughs> both know that they were accidental.
1: <laughs> don't worry. I have a vivid imagination. Maybe they didn't make that story up. They... Yeah, when my youngest was about five, I don't know what she'd been
0: doing, but I'd sent her to her room and I went in to have a conversation with her afterwards and I said to her, Keely, the world doesn't revolve around you. And that was her defining moment because she's like, well, who does it revolve around? And she said she remembers going into school trying to see who it was the world revolved around.
1: Oh, my God, I love that. I mean, this is the thing. We say things to each other all the time, especially as parents. We will say things and kids will hear things. And kids will say things and we will hear things. But So it's just. I think it's part of being human. So
0: <laughs> can't oh, be I just kind of I've said what I've said. I yeah. can't do anything about what the kids make it mean. They yeah. know that I love them and that's all that matters in the end. Yeah. They've got their own stuff. Let me go to the gift to the world thing because that's actually huge because as you were talking to me, I'm thinking, I don't know anybody that thinks they're a gift to the world.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly, I forget all the time. Don't worry. You know, I forget. But that was what my TEDx talk was about, was about what if we all walked around relating to ourselves like we were a gift to the world. Not like an ego trip. like who I'm God's gift to women or God's gift to, to the world. No, it's more like I'm a unique contribution because no one's had the life experience that I've had. I see the world in a particular way and I have something to contribute that will be unique to any conversation that you want to make a difference in. So that was what my TEDx talk was really about was what if we did walk around relating to ourselves like we were a gift and we had something to contribute. In the world.
0: It's really interesting. One of the things I had severe depression a few years ago, and one of the things that I read that made a massive difference was that you are a unique expression of the universe. There is nobody else. The universe has created you so it can experience the world through you because nobody else will ever have the same personality, experiences, thoughts, anything. And that's why you're here. It's the same kind of thing, isn't
1: it? It is, yeah. And when you come from that place, you will see new new actions to take, new things that you could say or contribute in, in different areas. So, yeah, well worth trying it on and seeing if it fits. If it doesn't fit, check it out, no problem.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's fun what works for you and get on with it.
1: <laughs> exactly. It doesn't work, throw it all out. Everything I said is null and void. No. <laughs>
0: let's go back to the endometriosis I didn't know about that what's happened with that because and Mm. the reason I'm asking is that I had a guest on my podcast called Gabrielle Jackson and Mm -hmm. she wrote a book called Pain and Prejudice it's great she's a journo with The Guardian and she did something on endometriosis because she's been struggling with it for years Mm. and then started looking into how the medical profession is massively biased against the female body. So Mm -hmm. if you haven't read that book, go and buy it because it is fantastic. But what was your experience with endometriosis?
1: Well, I think my story is probably similar to a lot of women who have had endometriosis or have it, which is that it typically takes in Australia seven years for a woman to be diagnosed, actually to get the diagnosis and go, this is what's going. On. and it's a condition of inflammation where the uh, lining of the uterus the endometrium cells start to grow outside of the uterus so they might grow internally in the abdomen they might attach to the gut so they can create gut problems if they kind of have in my case various things i mean you can even get endometriosis in the brain I've heard so so it can kind of these cells can grow in in your body and the thing about it is that it behaves in the same kind of cycle as your period which means that for me at the moment now I think it's been about I think uh I don't know how many years now it's been obviously seven years to take the to get the actual diagnosis where everybody kind of agreed yeah it's probably endometriosis and that that that's everyone that I've worked with with from gynecologists, my surgeon, um, GPs, naturopaths, traditional Chinese medicine doctors, you know, all kind of pointing to the same thing. <laughs> yeah, so it's a condition which follows the, the, the pattern of your period. So for me, I have um, an inflammation. It can flare up during um, ovulation and also during during my period or just leading up to my period as well. So, yeah, it's been a very long An expensive journey (laughs) I put thousands of dollars and lots of energy and time into into my personal approach with dealing with endometriosis I've had five surgeries and the surgeries have been hysteroscopies which go up through the cervix so it's a deemed a less invasive type of surgery uh, and that's been to deal with a, a fibroid in my uterus, which I wanted to try that approach rather than a laparoscopy where you go through the abdominal wall. So to to look inside and and potentially laser off any webbing that has grown through uh, with endometriosis. But I haven't had that surgery. Uh, I've just wanted to find other ways to kind of deal with. Um, but what it's meant is that I've learnt. A lot of um, ways and strategies to deal with chronic pain, and um, ways to be um, contributing, still be a gift to the world while you're dealing with chronic, chronic pain. So, wow.
0: Lex, I want to move on now to all your work in the gay community. Listen, before we go on, I'm going to apologise. I don't know the right terminology. I don't know whether I'm saying anything (laughs) offensive. I'm just going to apologise, right? No problem. A caring space here. Yes. Tell me about that because when I was reading your, we were talking the other week and, and you were talking about queers of joy and drag kings I've seen drag queens we've all watched drag race but drag kings <laughs> never thought about it but makes sense talk to me about all your work around there because you do a lot of activism and charitable works around
1: there I think yeah do you yes that's right so yeah I love that you brought up drag kings because most people have the same kind of question. you know they go Drag king, what do you mean? Like, and I'm like, well, you know how you've heard of drag queens, yes, is the, is the usual answer. Uh, well, a drag king, put simply, and in quite limited language, but is a woman who dresses up as a man, and lip syncs and performs on stage in a drag king persona. So, I've done drag king since 2012. I did my first drag king performance in a competition that a friend of mine was um, was running, Rocco Damore, another amazing drag king. And uh, so she was putting on this competition, She said, Danica, please come enter, enter the competition. And uh, yeah, so I got dressed up. I've discovered my drag king persona, which took a while to develop, but his name is Dario de Bello, meaning Dario the Beautiful. And... <laughs> It's quite an Italian stallion. I have a small percentage of Italian in my DNA, in my heritage, right? So it's very important when you create a persona that it's it's within your own heritage, that you're not culturally appropriating from someone else. Um, so it's a big no-no in the in the drag scene and something that people have sometimes gotten gotten wrong, shall we say. <laughs> it's been problematic. So very important to stick within your own cultural heritage. So and I now have um a group called Kings of Joy. And Kings of Joy is started as a group for first-time drag kings because there's a lot of women who would love to try being a drag king, but it's quite terrifying, the idea of putting on pretend facial hair, strapping down your breasts, maybe putting a pair of rolled-up socks down your pants. Like there's a whole process that goes into preparing and finding your drag persona. And so I run these groups for, for women who want to do it in a group. And being in that group environment is a really safe way to try out being a drag king. And in my work in Tantra, you know, I explore the divine feminine and the divine masculine. And I find that playing with gender and drag king expression is a really empowering way to explore your masculinity and uh, and very fun. So we have so, 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 so much fun. So these groups started in uh, December last year. So my spouse, Chris, or Christian, had a project that they began which is called Queers of Joy, as you mentioned before. So this is where Kings of Joy was born, from Queers of Joy. And Chris decided they wanted to create an event um, that was a performance night, a queer performance night here in Sydney, that really showcased uh, trans and transgender, gender diverse, gender non-conforming performers, and had them get paid for performing. And so we decided that we would have these Kings of Joy, first-time drag king groups. Uh, to perform each of the nights, you know, each time as well as part of it. So I'm the choreographer and creator of that. And uh, it has been an absolute highlight. People have had, they've had standing ovations, like, you know, we get the group out and at the moment we've got a group who are are practising for Backstreet Boys. Everybody, yeah. Remember that song from the, the 90s? So, yeah, it's super fun. You get dressed up in costume, you perform on stage with friends, with a group of people, and um, it's a real uh, amazing way to to explore a different kind of persona and expression for yourself.
0: You're also doing something with Queers of Joy with some people in Africa as well.
1: Yeah, so what happened was Queers of Joy's is, um, is every second month we have a, a live show, but, of course, we Sydney went into lockdown and uh, at first, Chris and the other co-producers, Malaika and Gabrielle, they were not necessarily thinking of doing an online show, but then Gabrielle was like, no, the community needs it. Let's do an online show. And so the first online show of Queers of Joy, um, someone bought a ticket from, uh, I think there was someone from Pakistan or Sri Lanka, like, you know, all over the world, people started buying tickets. And then the second show that we had, there was a trans woman named Lucretia, and she's actually a refugee. She's a Ugandan refugee living in Kenya uh, in one of the world's largest refugee camps. There's about 200,000 people in these um, camps, but this group uh, that Lucretia lives with are all the LGBTQIA people in the camp, and they've been segregated to one end of the camp, and they're subject to daily acts of violence, so recently, Lucretia was hit in the head with a rock. Their shelter, uh, there's about, I think there's about 56 adults who live there plus their children. And uh, they've had their shelter um, burnt down twice. Uh, so they're, they've been sleeping out in the open. People have died in those, in those fires and those arson attacks. So it's been very um, tragic. And that's been from other... Um, you know, conflict with other refugees in the in the camp a, uh, where in many countries in Africa, uh, areas in Africa where homosexuality is illegal and so Lucretia came on to Quiz of Joy she found us on Facebook and she was like Quiz of Joy, what is this joy, what is this Quiz of Joy I must know about this joy and uh, came on to the show unfortunately there was, was rain and it interfered with the internet so Chris sent Lucretia the uh the recording of the show and she sat around with a bunch of people there and she said we have not seen smiles like this on people's faces for a long long time and so we actually invited uh Lucretia and some of her friends there to come back to the next quiz of joy online and perform and uh they did a lip-syncing piece which was actually really quite harrowing I have to say there was just this you no, because these are people who are who have nothing, who are dealing with we have one cup of rice for our community until Christmas. like It's like that. Nothing to sleep on, sleeping out in the open, that kind of thing. So, yeah, and so we've put out a call out asking people to contribute financially. We've got a PayPal link that where people can contribute. And since then, um, Lucretia and the community have bought uh, a bunch of mattresses for people to sleep on. And um, it looks like we might have even raised enough money to help rebuild one of the shelters, which was operating as both a home for the lesbians but also as for the children and as a school for the children. So we might even be able to help rebuild that, that school for the kids.
0: Uh, the link, I need to say, will be up on the webpage and I'll also put it on YouTube. It will be below what we've been talking about now. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, Talk to me about your experiences as a gay person because I can't imagine it, to be perfectly honest. How did What did you experience and how did it impact you?
1: So for me personally, I was 17 years old in a, in a small country town. I, I grew up uh, in outside of Wangaratta in northeast Victoria and that's where I went to high school. I had a boyfriend by that stage and uh, he's a lovely guy and I had so many guys things asking would I go out with them or their friends asking would I go out with them and the answer for me was always no. I didn't know that I was a lesbian. I had no idea, absolutely no idea. I have an uncle who's gay, but I didn't ever think that that I was because when I grew up in the late 90s uh, in high school, it was such a bad term, the word lesbian, that no, no girl ever called anyone else that. It was just like such a bad term. You just didn't even call each other that. And so I had to deal with a lot of internalized homophobia myself and a lot of fear. You know, homophobia, phobia is when you have a fear of the unknown about another human being. And so I had a lot of fear of myself that I had to deal with. So what happened was uh, I fell in love with my first girlfriend and she was a year below me. And uh, so this time I was in year 12, she was in year 11 and I fell in love with her. And uh, yeah, we started hanging out all the time at the libraries. We were putting notes in each other's lockers. Like, we've got this. She's still got all the letters that I gave her, and I've still got all the letters in a book that she gave me. And um, yeah, we had this amazing experience of falling in love with each other. And for me, it just felt natural. Being with her felt like the most natural thing in the world. And suddenly, this whole side of my brain opened up. And I was interpreting all the, all of my favourite Alanis Morissette songs and Janet Jackson songs from a lesbian perspective, like I was now singing to a woman. And it just made sense to me, you know, totally made sense. But, yeah, we were terrified. You know, we were really scared. We had um, a, a gay uh, boy who came back, uh, who was a year above us, he came back to town and he got bashed up the street. We were frightened. And so we left. We left and we moved to Melbourne as soon as we could. I auditioned and got into my um, dance uh, degree at university. And Kelly came with me and she finished year 12 in, um, in a high school in, in Melbourne uh, in photography. So, yeah, we took some extraordinary leaps. We called 1997 was the year of the great escape. <laughs> but I had developed panic attacks you know, in that time of being at high school and, and and not feeling safe. I didn't feel safe. I had, like I said, I had to, I had this experience of being someone who had been very open and friends with everybody. I was friends with the cool kids. I was friends with the dorks. I was friends with the, like, you know, I had this open door policy for myself. And then I had this experience of people whispering about me as we are walking through the corridor and this kind of brick wall went up. And between me and other people and um, people pointing and laughing and that kind of thing. So I I felt it and I took it really hard (laughs) and had panic attacks from the age of 17 through to the age of about 22 or 23. And I finally met a psychologist who was actually a clinical hypnotherapist. She said to me, panic attacks, they're easy. We can disappear them in one session. And I was like, yeah, right lady, yeah, you have not lived my life. You do not know, you know, like in my head, I was like that, had this whole attitude. So I sat down on her couch and she got out the the um, clock and started, you know, this hanging kind of pocket watch and started, and I nearly started laughing. I just thought, this is just like in the movies. This is ridiculous. It's not going to work. And then she tapped me on the forehead. She did fast entry technique for hypnotherapy, tapped me on the forehead and I went head back. Eyes closed, I was completely out, like conscious, but in this deep, deep state of relaxation. And we did this whole process, and yes, yeah, I've only had one panic attack since, which was um, warranted given the circumstances. But for years and years and years, I've not had a panic attack since. So,
0: tell me, what else do you do around the lesbian and gay community?
1: I have another dance group with my background in dance and choreography. I have another dance group as well as the Kings of Joy, which is called Show Ponies. You have to kind of flick your hair when you say Show Ponies, Show Ponies. Show Ponies is, thank you, It's for unleashing your inner diva. So this is where I explore the divine feminine through the diva persona. So if you look at someone like Beyonce, she created a persona called Sa- Sasha Fierce. And Sasha Fierce was who she stepped into to be on stage and to be that expressive and um, you know dance in those ways and sing in those ways, perform in those ways. So um, we explore, yeah, creating our diva persona in show ponies, and um, that is super fun. So I have, again, a range of people um, of genders and and, uh, um, sexes, and we we do dance tributes to pop icons. So typically I use music from the 80s and 90s. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the same thing, so we do uh, 12 weeks of rehearsals And uh, at the end, we put on a showcase with the Kings of Joy and the Show Ponies, and we do do it as a fundraiser for the Hunger Project, which is about ending uh, hunger on the planet by empowering local people to come up with their own local solutions.
0: Let's just go with, because one of the things I do want to explore is discrimination, because... I can't Mm. put a nicer term on this, really gets up my nose, discrimination of any kind, Mm. and particularly against women, but against, I don't understand how you can discriminate against somebody for a choice that impacts nobody, like Mm. um, not even a choice, if you're Mm. being gay or announcing that you're gay. I don't understand that. I cannot comprehend it. And I don't know what the bloody question is now because I'm just <laughs> stating my opinion. Where am I going with this? What are your thoughts on that? What's been the impact on you and the people around you of that discrimination? Or what can you say to people who aren't sure? Oh, I don't know. I suppose because like you were saying, you had to deal with your own discrimination about Gay people, when you realize that you're a lesbian, Mm. so does everybody else. And half the time, people don't say anything because they really don't know what to say. Mm. (laughs) I just open my eyes and stuff comes out. (laughs) Then I apologize for everything I've just said in case I'm offended anybody. (laughs) I mean, do, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What are
1: your thoughts on that? Well, like I said before, any kind of phobia is a fear of the unknown. And In my own experience, yes, discrimination absolutely exists. It doesn't work to just put your head in the sand and say, well, it doesn't exist now. Everybody's accepting. Like, it's not the real reality. I mean, I had someone say to me, and sometimes it's subtle. Like, I had someone say to me recently, oh, where do you live? And I said, oh, I'm in in the inner west in Marrickville," And they're like, oh, in the trendy suburbs. And they were like, "Oh, we live out further west because we can't afford the trendy suburb." But the the truth of the matter is, I can't afford to live somewhere where I don't feel safe. So the inner west is a, is a, is a community where I feel like I can walk down the street and feel okay, and not feel like there's any kind of threat, immediate threat to being who I am, and that I can express myself safely. So sometimes that means that, and often that means that. You know, people who are from the LGBTQIA community, we make choices like that, where we spend more money on rent, for example, or have to spend more on housing to live somewhere that is seen as trendy. But I'm like, I don't live here because it's trendy. I live here because I feel safe um, to be myself. So there's considerations like that that people don't realise. And similarly, with I think you know the transgender community, for me, it wasn't until I knew someone personally. Uh, who'd been a lover of mine who transitioned and watching them go through their transition and starting to see that, oh, I get it now. Like he is now someone who is in full alignment and integrity with himself. How he was before as a woman wasn't quite, quite right for him. Now that he's made this transition, including physical transitions such as top surgery and taking testosterone, I can get it. I can see that he is in his full integrity as a person. It took care of something that was out of alignment for him. But until I knew, had that personal experience of knowing someone personally, I don't think I fully got that. So I think sharing, the more that we can listen to diverse voices, because often the thing is that we say we want diversity, but the moment someone has a different point of view than us, we're like, ah, 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 ah. no, 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 no. But that's what diversity is. Diversity includes different opinions. And if we actually came from that we all belong to the same human family, because we actually do, but it doesn't mean that we're all just going to get along like rote. It also means that there's going to be diversity. There's going to be different points of view. There's going to be different life experiences. And so do we look for, when is it useful to look for difference? And when is it useful to look for being the same? That we're all human having a human experience here and when is it useful and important to distinguish the things that do make us different and the ways that discrimination can um, can play out in, in people's real lives and affect them in that way. I mean, there are still situations where um, a teacher, a female teacher recently um, was fired for being gay. So th- these things do still happen. It's not that they're not happening. So But, you know, if people aren't sharing, then we don't hear about it. No, we don't. I'm always a bit perplexed because to
0: me what's important is who you are as a person. Couldn't give two hoots, whether you're black, Muslim, gay, red with yellow dots on, whatever. It's who are you as a person. That's the most important thing. So I've never been able to understand why anything else would be of any relevance,
1: yes, yeah, and it's interesting, Karen, because I think um, a good place for us to look because we're both white, so a good place for us to look is through that through the lens of racism. And the thing about racism is that it is just as insidious. So if we come from a place of like I accept everybody, it's flawed because we will never see the ways that we actually have an unconscious bias or some form of. Um, discriminating against people who don't look like us. Recently, we went to a barbecue at my, our daughter's um, uh, primary school and it was like one of those letting everyone get to know each other, like the parents get to know each other. And I observed this phenomenon, which really struck me. I was reading the book, White Fragility, um, which deals with how come white people find it so difficult to talk about race and racism. And it's, a, I highly recommend this book by Robin DiAngelo. But what I observed was that birds of a flock uh, of a feather flock together. so same stick with same. And it was demonstrated in this barbecue. So all the white parents were sitting over in one area of the um, of the schoolyard. And then I looked over, and then there were all the people of color sitting together. And then there was a third group, which was really interesting, which was interracial marriages. <laughs> so you had you know a white woman and an asian husband or like this and my my spouse and my Chris stood in the middle of the schoolyard looking around going oh my god where what's happening and where do we go you know like it was just it was fascinating to see human beings behave in this way so I think it's useful to take off the lens of I'm accepting of everyone and just look for How do I discriminate? Where do I benefit from a privilege that I was, that I didn't earn? In what ways do I benefit from that? Even if it's just in networking, you know, and it takes, I belong to a a business networking group and it takes something to think outside of where you would normally go and what you, who you would normally speak to, to not just look for people who look like you, to actually broaden your network and look at, well, how come, I, all my friends are white or how come I don't know someone in business who is a different gender or sexuality or race than me? Like, and not to make yourself wrong or invalidate yourself at all, but just go, oh, okay. I have to do some extra thinking and intellectual effort to broaden and look out and go, yeah, where are the people of color hanging out that I could connect with and support and empower or, and, and be contributed to as well. It's interesting that you're saying that because as you're talking, I'm going, oh,
0: yeah, I flock to the easiest conversation. So if I've got a background of relatedness, same gender, same career path, same kind of age group, that's going to be the easiest conversation for me to go to. Mm. And I know when I've been in situations where I've met somebody that's not the same background, colour, race, anything to me I've been really tongue-tied and I have Mm -hmm. to really make an effort because I don't know what to say there isn't an automatic thing that I can talk about because I don't know what to say
1: yeah beautiful example Karen I think that's great and if we came from or we belong to the same human family that does give us something a different place to relate to people from which is we're both human we're going to have the same kind of Similar human experiences in a lot of areas as well as some points of difference. So it's a different um, jumping off place to start from in a conversation when you come from, hey, you're my human family. (laughs) I'm your human family.
0: That's actually great. That gave me a lot of freedom because it's less about the detail and more about the generalities, I suppose.
1: Mm. Yeah, And then you can get curious about the detail
0: yeah I know I mean that's why I've got the podcast one of the reasons yeah Yeah. Yeah. but I have noticed that um, and to be fair my podcast is aimed at middle-aged women so most of my guests are middle-aged women yeah (laughs) the odd bloke on but there's a reason for that but maybe I need to spread my net a bit wider
1: and talk to other cultures as well yeah absolutely I think that would be really enriching the more that we can have a diverse experience of life and and Uh, Yeah, it's
0: very, very enriching. Yeah. Right. Let me talk to me because we're going to have to wrap up. We could quite absolutely gas on for another hour or so. But let's talk to me again about Queers of Joy and the African charity and everything and how people can contribute to that because that's really important to me. That was just when Mm. you told me about that, that was horrifying. Oh, that was the other thing I was going to ask you. Tell me why their dance was harrowing. Why was it so harrowing?
1: Yeah, so they'd done a video um, and the the song was, we are the world, we are the children. And there was about four four or five people from the camp and they were wrapped in, you know, like rainbow flags or the trans flag, which is pink, blue and white. And... Normally when you see a drag, um, any kind of lip syncing performance, you think of RuPaul or, you know, there's a lot of energy and a lot of life force and a lot of glamour and glitz and sparkles. And it wasn't that way at all. It was harrowing because these people hardly had any energy. Some people didn't even lip sync because they, all they could do was just rock and, um, there was a despair present, like the kind of despair that we don't see every day in our, you know, privileged way of living here in Australia. And it's the kind of despair that where you've seen your best friend burning alive and then die in the hospital from the arson attack. It's the kind of despair that you have when you're hungry, when you're really hungry and you're in a situation where there's not much you can do about it. You are, you know, dealing with um, threats and taunts and violence on a regular basis, being traumatised. So there was just this depth of human despair that was that was present. Even though for them that song was something of hope, you know, it was a song of hope for them. They shared about that, but that was what was so harrowing. Karen it was like, I've never seen that, been witness to that kind of depth of despair before.
0: So, people, if you would like to contribute and Danica and I would love you to contribute, please head over to the web page or click on the link underneath this video and donate to the people, these guys, these guys. Yeah.
1: Humans, people, our our human beings.
0: I just just use guys, I always say it to my kids now, male and female, guys.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
0: uh, wrong gender.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right, common (laughs) language. Yeah, so that's um, I've written a blog post about um, the community Block 13, they're they're called, and um, yeah, there's a link in there, which is a, a PayPal link where you can contribute financially. And, yeah, they've been really responsible, really accountable to how they're spending that money. They've asked that we don't give it all at once. Um, and they've got a finance team in the community. So they, you know, work together collaboratively to make decisions about what to spend the money on. Um, and obviously mattresses was, was a good choice as well as a cooking pot and, um, and extra rice that will um, last a lot longer for, yeah, for eating. Mm. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah
0: thank you so much for this this has been absolutely wonderful
1: thank you karen it's a delight and it's a delight to be with someone who's so curious and engaged and you know has so much energy and life for, and love for people so thank you for who you are oh thank you thanks for joining
0: us this week on menopause marriage and motherhood Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favourite player and while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode and remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have? See you next week.